I'm sure that most of you heard the sad news that Chuck Berry, the great guitarist, passed away about a week ago. Chuck Berry was 90 years old, and he's been called the founder of rock and roll, certainly one of the fathers of rock and roll. He was an amazing man who really did change music in the the 1950s and 60s. It turned out that he'd ultimately be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He has been called one of the 10 greatest guitarists of all time. There's so many different people who have copied his music, everybody from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones to the Beach Boys. No, he had such a profound effect upon the music of of America. He had great success, but he also knew great failure. He was born back in 1926 in St. Louis, born into a very middle-class African-American family. It's because they were going to church that he first learned about music and his love for music, and that's where he started singing. But as he started growing up, it turned out that he, uh, he got struggling in school, in kind of with the wrong crowd. His senior year, one day they're walking through a parking lot and they see a gun lying there. Didn't have any bullets in it. But on the spur of the moment, they decided to go on a crime spree. They stole a car. They robbed the cleaners, a convenience store. Now, these were not professional thinking criminals. No, it took the the police about this long to catch them. Because they were underage, he was ultimately sent to a reformatory school, a prison. He'd be there for three years. He got out on his 21st birthday. And when he got on his 21st birthday, he really kind of faced one of those crossroads. What do you do? Now that you've had this kind of failure, this has happened in your life, Does that define your life? Does that limit you to what you can do? Where do you go from here? He got a job at an automotive company. He was working hard. He got a job as a janitor, a second job to help make ends meet. He would meet his wife. They got married. They'd be married for 68 years. We know that by the early 1950s, he must have had some stability because they managed to buy a a three-room brick house there in in St. Louis. You can go see it. It's a landmark today in St. Louis, Chuck Berry's early home. And it's while he was working there and now trying to make something of his life and be disciplined in what they were doing that, that he also started playing with bands on the weekends, on the side. Just because he had fun and just to make a little extra money, he started playing. It was about 1955 that one of his friends said, you know, you need to go to Chicago. You need to go to Chicago and I'll get you an introduction to a friend of mine named Muddy Waters. And Muddy will help you know a person who has a recording company. And so he went to Chicago. He met Muddy Waters. He got introduced to this recording company. And what he did was he played from a new song that he had. It was called Maybelline. Here you had a guy who then said that we want to record it. He's a brand new artist, first record to record. It sells over a million copies and goes to number one, 1955, Maybelline. He comes out of 1956, roll over Beethoven. 
1957, rock and roll music. 1958, Johnny B. Good. I mean, it's 55, 56, 57, 58, just one hit after another. And he is suddenly becoming so popular, a superstar. But it wasn't just the singing, it's the way that he was performing. You see, in those days, when people went to a concert, well, the musician came out, and you stood in front of the microphone, you, you, know, you played your musical instrument, you may have played your guitar, but you stood there and you sang. Well, that's not how Chuck Berry did it. Chuck Berry began dancing around, playing his guitar, singing. He developed his very famous one-legged hop when he would start. I was going to demonstrate that for you here. <laughs> I'm very good on the air guitar. <laughs> he would jump across the stage on one leg and he was playing his guitar. And then, of course, there was the famous duck walk. When he was down low and he's so low and walking with his feet and bobbing his head as he's playing his guitar and walking along, that's what he became known for. And I saw an interview taken a, a number of years ago now in which they were asking him about that. How did you come up with the duck walk? And he said he was in New York, he was performing, and he was doing his one-legged hop across the stage playing the guitar when he tripped and fell. (laughs) He fell flat on his face, and quickly he decided to get up and keep on playing, but he just stayed low to the ground and started walking like a duck and doing his head and continuing to play the guitar, and he said the crowd went wild. (laughs) Because he got such a reaction, he decided to add it to his routine... And it became one of his signature moves. And I thought, that actually is exactly how his life went. It's how our life needs to go. When you fall down, you decide to get up and keep on playing. It's exactly the decision that Peter faced in our scripture lesson this morning. What do you do when you fall flat on your face? Last week, we looked at Palm Sunday. I know that next week is Palm Sunday. We'll talk about it again. But last week, we held Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. How the people were waving their branches and they were shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. And he made his entry into Jerusalem and he went to the temple And so then on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, he was teaching in the temple every day. On Thursday, it was now the Passover. His disciples had prepared a room where they could come and celebrate the Passover. It was an upper room. They gathered. They had their meal. They celebrated the Passover the way a good Jew should. But Jesus already knew that things were afoot. Judah slipped out. After dinner was over, He took the rest of the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And there he asked them, would you pray? Pray, this is going to be hard. I need strength. It wasn't too long until Judas showed back up. He came into the garden and went over to Jesus and greeted him with a kiss on the cheek. And suddenly out of the shadows, here came the Roman soldiers. They grabbed hold of Jesus. It scared everyone. They had their swords flashing Everyone ran away, and they then took Jesus to the house of the high priest. 
It was only Peter who decided to follow along to see what was going to happen. And Peter followed into the courtyard. A number of people had gathered around a a fire to stay warm. And Peter was standing there when one of the maids looked over at him and said, You, I saw you with him. You're one of his followers. Never seen the man. Never seen the man. Wasn't too long till another person said, Yeah, I recognize you. You were there. You were with him. Nope, nope. Never seen him. I don't know what you're talking about. It's about an hour later. And another person spoke up and said, You got a Galilean accent. He's from Galilee. You are one of his. I swear I've never seen this man before. Earlier in the evening, Jesus had said, Peter, it's going to get tough tonight. It's going to be frightening. It's going to be hard. You'll deny me. And Peter swore, everyone might run away, but I will never deny you. Jesus now turned. The cock crowed. Jesus looked over at Peter. He didn't have to say a word. Peter remembered. He fled out of the courtyard and began to weep. He thought back how it had been maybe a year ago. A year ago, Jesus had said to him, Peter, you are the rock. And on you, I will build my church. Obviously, it was impossible that the one who denied knowing Jesus could ever be the rock on whom Christ would build his church. Or was it? This morning, I I want to continue the sermon series, Impossible Possibilities. We've said throughout this season of Lent, you and I are going to look at those things in our lives, those issues that we need to deal with that seem impossible, and discover how, through the grace of Christ, they are possible to deal with. They are impossible possibilities. The one who denied knowing Jesus could be the rock on whom Christ would build his church? An impossible possibility. Two things that I want us to see today. First of all, it is because of the grace of Christ that you and I have the freedom to choose how we deal with our failures. It is God's grace that says to us our failures are not final. Our failures do not have to define who we are. It is God's grace that leads us into the future after our failures so we can be the person that God has created us to be. Sometimes you and I forget we are free, that we get to choose. We somehow feel enslaved, entrapped, Because of our mistakes, because of our failures, we forget you get to make a choice. You know, I always like to compare and contrast here Judas and Peter in the story. I mean, here you have Judas. Most scholars say that Judas wasn't trying to sell out Jesus for money. 
He was trying to force Jesus' hand. Now, what he was trying to do was to get Jesus to form the army. There's millions of Jews in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now's the time to start a movement. Let's overthrow the Romans. Jesus wouldn't get on with it, so he helped to force his hand, and Jesus didn't do it. And now Peter, and now Judas realizes he isn't going to do this. He has been taken by the Romans. It's not going to go well. He feels overwhelmingly guilty. He obviously has failed. And he quits. He takes his life. What Judas did not discover in that moment, but would one day, that the forgiveness that Jesus offered to Peter, God had also given to him. But he quit too soon. Peter, am I going to be a fisherman? Am I going to be the rock? It was a choice he had to make. And at times you forget you're free to make the choice. When I was preparing for Wednesday Night Alive, Wendy and I were teaching this year on the Reformation. And I love going back and looking at history. We were looking back at the 1400s and 1500s and then 1600s. And as I got to reading through there, I came across William Penn. And I've always thought he was a fascinating man. And I started doing some more reading on him. You know, William Penn was in the 1600s living in England, but then he got a grant of land here in New England, in this new country. And he came to the East Coast, and there he was able to have a colony, and of course, William Penn's colony became Pennsylvania. And he founded the city of Philadelphia. Now, he was a very devout Quaker. But the fascinating thing about William Penn is when he came and and founded his colony... In 1701, he wrote this Charter of Freedoms. And what it was, was it gave people permission to worship however they wanted. Now, that was still really a new idea here in these new colonies in this America. Now, you see, many people were still coming so they could worship all together as Catholics. That's why they went to Maryland. They would come and they would worship as Calvinists or um, Puritans or the Presbyterians as the Quakers. And so many of the colonies had such a, um, you had to worship and do it a certain way. Not in Pennsylvania. William Penn said, religious toleration, you may worship as you see fit. And he created, we're going to set laws and you get to vote on the laws that we're all going to follow. It is no wonder that the constitutional, our constitution was written in Philadelphia. And so much of what William Penn put down in 1701 would become a part of the constitution of the United States. Many of the very ideas. Well, the people of Pennsylvania understood they were being blessed to get to live in a place with this kind of attitude. And so that was in 1701. In 1751, they decided to celebrate the 50th anniversary of this wonderful document that gave them these freedoms, and they wanted to do it, and they ordered a bell. And on the bell, they would write a scripture, Leviticus 25.10. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. The bell became known as the Liberty Bell. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. 
Well, they begin to ring it on all kinds of important days to call people there to the courthouse, which ultimately became Constitutional Hall. It was said that the Liberty Bell was ringing on July the 8th, 1776, when we had the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence, Freedom. It would continue to ring through so many important times. It was in the 1830s that the abolitionists took the bell to be their symbol. Those who wanted to get rid of slavery, they looked to the bell that became their symbol. I mean, it said on it, proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. It means all people should be free. They rang the bell on 1846 to celebrate George Washington's birthday. And that was the day when they rang it, they got a big crack. It had been cracked. I don't really know where it started. They'd worked on it to try to stop it. But now it cracked big enough that they said they probably could never ring it again. After our Civil War, Philadelphia gave the bell to take a tour all the way from Philadelphia to California and all the way back. More than 10 million people would see the bell, touch it, kiss it. They wanted to remind the country, proclaim liberty throughout all the land. We are a people who are free. We are free. And then it was in the early 1900s with the women's suffrage that the Liberty Bell again became their symbol as women said, we want the right to vote, to be treated as equals. You know, the Liberty Bells become this iconic symbol for who we are in America. You know, it used to hang in the tower there at Constitutional Hall, but now it has its own space and people will line up for more than an hour to come by and see the Liberty Bell. The yoke that holds the Liberty Bell, many historians believe, is the original yoke. It's made out of American elm, which also goes by the name Slippery Elm. And when I read that, I thought, how appropriate. For it reminds us that freedom is so slippery. It is so easily lost. And we must guard against losing liberty. How often in our lives... Individually, we lose our liberty, our freedom. We decide because of the past, we're trapped, we're enslaved. It's the way that it has to be. No, it doesn't. You live in America, first of all. But most importantly, it's because of God's grace. God's grace that says you are forgiven, you are accepted, it is God who gives you a vision of the future of who you were created to be. It begins with a choice. Peter, you want to be a fisherman or you want to be the rock? You get to choose. So secondly, it is also the belief that we don't have to be afraid of our failures. Because of God's grace, the belief is that, that you'll learn from your failures. In fact, it may be because of your failures that you become the person God called you to be. I really believe that because of what Peter just went through and how he failed, it would change his personality forever. He would be more compassionate. 
more forgiving. He would be stronger. I think it enables him to be the rock because he failed and yet chose to not let that failure define his life. He would become the person God said he could be. You don't have to be afraid of the failures. It's where you grow. It's where you learn. This past week, I was out of town for a couple of days. I was in another state. You know, whenever you go somewhere else, you're, the TV channels all change on you. I was trying to flip through to find HGTV. It's what I typically tend to watch. Couldn't find HGTV. I'm flipping along, and I came across the, the cooking channel. And lo and behold, what would be on but the French chef? It was Julia Child, one of those reruns. And I thought, I hadn't thought about Julia Child, and I don't know when. What an amazing lady. What a great story. You remember? You remember how Julia Child, back in 1950, was in France? And she decided she wanted to learn how to cook. And so she enrolled at the Cordon Bleu School of French Cooking. Nobody wanted her there. I mean, these were all men. French men, and now you had a woman from America who stood at 6'3", towering over all of them, and she said she's going to learn how to cook just as good as them. They did not like it. They made it tough on her, but she worked harder than anybody else, and in the end, she graduated from the Cordon, School, Cordon Bleu School of Cooking there in, in Paris. And when she got through, she thought, you know, I need to teach women of America how to cook French food. Now understand, in the 1940s and 50s, that's what she was thinking. I got to teach the women of America how to cook French food. Things have changed a lot since the 1940s and 50s. But so she sat down and she started writing a cookbook about how to do French cooking. And it's called Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And when she got through, it was about that thick. And she took it to the publishers and they all said, no one is going to buy that. No one's interested in that. Finally, one publisher decided to go with it in a limited edition. It immediately sold out. There was a second printing, a third printing, a fourth printing. It became one of the best-selling books of the year, year after year after year. Julia Child literally changed the way America looked at food and the way that we were cooking. It was incredible what she wound up doing for us. She came back home with her husband, Paul. They, they moved back to the United States and they settled in Cambridge, just right outside of Boston. And it was in 1962. They had an educational TV show on WGBH-TV. It was, it was an educational station. And what they would do is they'd bring in two professors and they'd sit and they'd talk about something. I mean, it was about as exciting as watching paint dry. But television was new. And so they came in. They would talk. They created a whole new show. What are people reading? And they'd invite authors to come and talk about their book. Well, the associate director of this TV station was a woman. And she said to her boss, let's have Julia Child. They had never had a woman author on. And because of this woman saying, I want to hear Julia Child. They said, okay. So they set her up on a date to come. The day before she's supposed to arrive, she called the station and said, now I'm going to need a hot plate tomorrow. A hot plate? 
I thought you were coming to talk about your book. Well, I am, she said, but I'm going to cook. They freaked out. (laughs) You're going to cook? I'll bring the bowl. I'll bring the ingredients. I just need a hot plate. Well, they got her a hot plate, and all they could think about was all the things that could go wrong. And Julia showed up, and she talked, and so then she got out her eggs and said, I'm going to make an omelet, and she cracked her eggs, and she whipped them all up, and she's adding these ingredients. She poured them in a pan, got on the hot plate, cooked up this omelet. She cut her fork, she cut it, mm, took a bite, took that same fork, cut another bite, and offered it to the host. <laughs> he stood there just looking at her. Finally, he opened his mouth and took the bite. And then this smile comes across his face and he went, that's good. The phone started ringing. The letter started coming. We want more Julia. We want more Julia. And so they brought her back on again and then again and again. This was in 62. The seeds were being planted for February of 1963 when the French chef was created. They made a commitment We will have Julia on every week. It's going to be a regular TV show, The French Chef. It was the first TV cooking show ever, a forerunner of the Food Channel. So she's on, she's cooking. And America fell in love with Julia Child. Why? It's because every week she got on and it was from live to tape and there was no editing. You got what you got. And Julia got out there and she had to risk every week and try new things and she would fail and she would just smile and keep on going. I mean, do you remember the famous week when she got out there and she's making this potato pancake and she has her pan and saying, now, you got to learn to flip this stuff. You got to flip it. And you have to do this with confidence. And she kind of flips half-heartedly and it hits the pan and goes all over the stove and it cracks up and she goes, see, I wasn't confident enough. (laughs) I didn't flip with conviction. She scoops it all up, puts it back in the pan, kind of pats it down, says, well, put it in another pan and stick it in the oven. And if that happens when people are around, you just act like that's what's supposed to happen. (laughs) Another day she'd been cooking a souffle. She pulled it out of the oven. And when she pulled it out of the oven, it's so beautiful. Then it goes, she looked at the camera and said, Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Bon appetit. (laughs) We loved her for it. She would try, and sometimes it failed, and she kept going, and we wanted to learn. She was so passionate about what she was doing. You know, one of the things that made her cooking so good was all the butter. She got criticized about that all the time. She got criticized for lots of things, but she always kept going. But she really got criticized about the butter. I, I want to read you a few important quotes that, that Julia Child would want to leave with you. She said, if you're afraid of butter, use cream. <laughs> I would rather eat one tablespoon of chocolate roux cake than three bowls of Jello. The only time to eat diet food is while you're waiting for the steaks to cook. (laughs) Everything in moderation, including moderation. (laughs) 
when she talked about her life, she said, I was a pure romantic and only operating with half my burners on. This is my invariable advice to people. Learn how to cook. Try new recipes. Learn from your mistakes. Be fearless. And above all, have fun. Try new things. Learn from your mistakes. Be fearless. And above all, live. It's because of the grace of Christ. When you and I fall down, we can decide to get back up and keep on playing. For Peter, was it possible? Was it possible the one who denied knowing Jesus could be the rock on whom Christ could build his church? It was an impossible possibility. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.